The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody. I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the guy who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book. And I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I just hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And I am so excited to be joined today by Fatima Bhutto. She is an award-winning author, world-renowned. She's written books like uh, Shadow of the Crescent Moon, Songs of Blood and Sword, New Kings of the World, and of course, her newest book, The Runaways. Fatima, good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, at the beginning of every episode, I always say what kind of coffee I'm drinking. I wanted to reread a couple of your books last night, so I did an all-nighter of just Fatima Butu text. So I'm drinking just espresso. I just had, I've been having espresso all day. Now, you're a writer, and you've written a gajillion books of all genres. Do you drink coffee when you write? I do. I mean, I can't write without coffee. Ah, what kind? What do you drink? It's mood-dependent, but at the moment, I'm using a mocha, you know, the Italian drip coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a fancy coffee drinker. No, I mean, it's not fancy. It's less fancy than espresso. It's also weaker than espresso. Fair point. Now I feel no, no. <laughs> I think for me, it was just the fact that you do something yourself. I go to the store. I, I own a cafe <laughs> and I still don't make it myself when I'm writing, when I'm in writing mode. But that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. Your latest book is called The Runaways. Why that title and, and what's it about? The Runaways is about a world on fire. It's about the weaponization of the internet and the weaponization of isolation and loneliness. It's about radicalism. And it's about young people who take up arms against the world. And the title, because that's what they do. They're, they're leaving behind everything that they've ever known and loved. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful book to me. And it really helps us understand in really human terms how people go uh, on that journey to becoming, quote unquote, radicalized. No sensational media accounts, you know, no sort of fundamentalist religious accounts, you know, as the explanatory factor. You help us understand the human factors and the social conditions that lead people to that place. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. So you have an honor. You're the first fiction writer to be on the Coffee and Books podcast. Normally, I sit with people who write nonfiction books, but this is a pretty big deal. I'm excited. Thank you. I, I am honored. It's great to speak with you about anything, really. The last thing we spoke about was propaganda and film. Yes, before that, when we met at an Al Jazeera studio, we spoke about, I mean, everything. Possible. No, that is so true. We were in, we were in London and, uh, yeah. and I actually had a copy of The Runaways then before it made the U.S. print. So I, it was fun to read it then. It was even better to read it a second time in light of just everything that's been going on around the world. So let's yeah. talk about the book. What made you write this book? Well, um, it's always something that's haunted you, that forces you to write a novel. When you're curious about something, you might turn to nonfiction. You know, when you see something clearly, you'll approach it with nonfiction. But when something disturbs you and it haunts you, I think novels are the only way to go. And it had really been my entire adult life, you know, 
from the age of whatever it was, 19, 20 years old, that the West seemed to be at war with the Muslim world. And even though they said they weren't, you had Western armies in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had drone wars in Pakistan, Somalia, places like that. And you couldn't escape it if you happen to be a young person from that part of the world. Anytime you were at an airport, the fact that you were a Muslim made you a threat, yeah. it made you a source of suspicion. And I became wounded. I became tired of it. And so it was really around 2014 that I sat down and thought, I'm going to write a novel about this. Because it had kind of reached a zenith in 2014. You know, it was when ISIS turned up. And they were spectacular and horrifying and very performative. And people just lost themselves to this kind of hysteria. And I found myself having to explain to strangers, to people I knew, <laughs> that this really didn't have anything to do with Islam. And that radicalism was a really complicated subject. It wasn't the way it was being portrayed. And at some point, I just gave up explaining it and sat down and started writing. Wow, and a powerful portrayal. I mean, the book looks at this idea of radicalization, and it really forces us to, to wrestle with the question of how do people get there? You know, in, in Western media in particular, we hear the stories of radicalization, but they always seem very distant and exotic and dehumanizing in certain kinds of ways. Yeah, they are. The, the Western media narrative will just tell you like, oh, this person is a Muslim. There you go. And they're radicalized. <laughs> and it's, it's as though something inherent to Islam or the Muslim experience has driven them to this life of crime and violence and terror. But of course, any study you want to look at, studies all over the world over decades have shown that religion is not a spark to radicalism. It's actually an insulator. It's a protector. And most of the young men and women who are radicalized and who join these terror groups are not joining because they're scholars of religion. They're joining, in fact, they know very little about religion, but they're joining because they're angry and because they're alienated and because they're humiliated. And because ultimately they don't see that their society has a place for them. And so they will take any place that is offered to them. Reading the book, I felt like I was getting a powerful window into these experiences. It was almost like a documentary for me, but like a good one, you know, where, where the director is committed to helping us understand who these people are. It's not an overly sympathetic read, in my estimation. You know, it's not like you're making excuses for folk. You're, you're, you're not justifying, nor are you fully dismissing the choices people make as much as you're helping us understand them. Uh, there are three primary characters. Hmm who you introduce us to in the book. I have a little bit of anxiety talking about a fiction book for some reason in a podcast, because like, I don't want to spoil anything for the person who hasn't read it. So, <laughs> but I, I, there are three characters, and this first character, uh, Anita Rose, is, is an interesting one. Help me understand her a little bit. Well, one of the things I wanted to do with The Runaways is to say, if we're not going to talk about religion as the spark to radicalism, then what are the reasons? And Anita Rose is a young girl from Karachi, and she doesn't live in the neighborhood that Monty, one of the other characters, lives in. She lives in a congested and crowded colony, which is a sort of byword for slum. And she's a poor girl. She is uh, the child of a single mother. And Anita Rose's city is one that rejects her. It's one that allows her no access, no space, no voice, no privilege because she doesn't belong to the center. She comes from the periphery of the city. 
And Anita Rose's story is one about a, a raging inequality, about the devastations of inequality and the devastations of poverty and, and what that does to anyone, but in particular, an outspoken young girl. Hmm. So the road to radicalization, poverty, it should be a key part of the conversation. And again, when we look over the last decade or so, you know, groups like the Taliban and other things, you know, sometimes if you watch, if you were to watch American cable news, you would think that they were these kind of magicians who come in and captivate the people and lure them into bad choices and unethical choices of violence, simply because the people are too uncivilized or unsophisticated to understand that there are better options. The idea that people get radicalized because oftentimes radical organizations and radical movements invest in those places. They, they come where there is no school, where there is no playground, where there is no food and jobs and say, hey, here's an opportunity. Now, those groups are problematic themselves, but they, but they come with something and, and something material that people aren't getting. And the idea that there's a relationship between poverty and radicalization is something that I don't think we take seriously. But with Anita, you're, this character, Anita Rose, like this idea of not wanting to be engaged in servitude not mm -hmm. wanting to be uh, consigned to a certain kind of life is key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that there are several ways to approach it. And, and the one you mentioned is very important. You know, we see this all the time in, in cases of disaster. In you know, Pakistan has floods every year. I mean, it's happening now in the news as we speak after the monsoon rains. And the city is so inept that they can't really do anything and people are drowning in, in what ultimately becomes sewage water because they've got no facilities, they've got no support. And a lot of organizations will come in and they'll clean away that water. You know, they'll come in with food, they'll come in with candles when the electricity goes. So absolutely what you mentioned is, is vital. And in the case of Anita Rose, and I'll be a little circumspect only because of all the spoilers and different things that I don't want to give away. It's really important, I think, to know that when people are not given options by their society, they will either destroy that society or they will offer their loyalty, their space, their voice to a society that engages with them. And I think that's, I think that's key. And I think it's one of the huge things that has been missed in the conversation on radicalism. Another thing that I, I think about when I think about this other character, Sonny, is the idea of belonging, the idea of wanting to connect and, and, and how people can be captivated by messianic figures, by uh, charismatic figures because of these human needs we have, because there's the structural stuff that we talked about, right? The idea that poverty and joblessness will make you do all kinds of stuff or lead you down certain roads. But there's a human aspect, there's like, there are our own gaps, our own kind of individual stories and experiences, mm -hmm. the holes in our own uh, childhood, the, the needs we have as people that also make us vulnerable to everything from cults to, to charismatic leadership to, to radical groups. Sonny for me, in some ways, was the most captive, the most interesting character. Maybe it, the character resonated with me the most, but I'm fascinated. I'm glad you say that because he's my favorite. <laughs> you, really? He's my favorite. That makes me feel good. I chose right. <laughs> yeah, he's my favorite. And, and I think... Sonny comes from this, this romantic longing that his father has. His father leaves India, the country of, of everything, you know, the country of their ancestors, of their struggles, of their dreams. And Sonny's father, Suleiman Jamil, goes to England and he goes against the advice of his friends and some of his family 
because he really believes that the future is westward. And he believes that the West is a place that is magically going to open itself to him, that's going to welcome him, that's going to appreciate his initiative and his striving and reward him for it. And of course, what he finds out the moment he lands after a disastrous sort of journey is that that's not true. The West is contemptuous of people like him. The West is suspicious of people like him. And the West is, is, is unyielding. You know, it doesn't want to open up and bestow him with all the gifts of, of glory and, and promise. But Sonny's father still believes that it will, you know, even decades later. And his son, who's born in Portsmouth and who's brought up in Portsmouth and goes to school in Portsmouth, understands viscerally that he doesn't belong. And anytime he forgets that, he's reminded. And so he has, um, he has what I think a lot of people feel right now, which is a, a, an acute sense of isolation. You know, if you don't belong where you are, you have another place to belong to that's waiting for you. Where do you go to be understood? You know, what, what options of brotherhood and communion and community are available to you? And that's something that Sunny struggles with. Let's talk a little bit about this third character as well, because I'm fascinated by Monty. I'm really fascinated by Layla, but I'm going to, let's, let's start with Monty. Who is Monty and, 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 and what lures Monty down this road? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the amazing things about radicalism, if we look at it through real life, is that none of it squares up with what we think about radicalism. So there was a, a young American woman called Buddha Muthana, who I think was, uh, is from Alabama. And I believe her family migrated from, from Somalia. And one of the things she said was that, you know, she went to this normal high school and she wanted to be on the football team and go to sleepovers and all the rest of that. But her parents were really strict and they didn't let her be a normal American teenager, which is what she was. And that she ran away to Daesh, to, to ISIS, to be free. To you or me, that might sound completely off kilter or, or counterintuitive. Yeah. But Monty's story is one of those things that, that I felt might be counterintuitive, but important. Monty comes from Karachi too, like Anita Rose and Leila. And privileged, um, right? But he's incredibly privileged. Monty is not on, from the periphery of the city. Monty is from the heart, the gold heart of the city. And Monty wants for nothing, needs nothing, is denied nothing. Goes to the best school, lives in the best neighborhood. But yet, something appears to be missing. Something appears not to add up entirely for Monty. And he does have a certain loneliness. But really, Monty becomes fixated on a young woman called Leila. And what happens with Layla and a kind of heart sickness or heartbreak is what throws Monty's world off balance and forces him to make decisions that he would not have. Yes, it happens to the best of us. When you think about your intended audience for a book like this, hmm. who's your ideal reader? You know, whenever I write, I'm my ideal reader in a, in a strange way, because if you start to imagine audiences, I think you become compromised by that imagination because then you start writing in a direction, you know, to appeal to people or to interest people. And I think that can be dangerous. So when I'm writing, the thing I'm always following 
is something I'm distressed about or curious about or don't understand. And I have to be faithful to wherever it goes, if that makes sense. Yeah. When I started to write The Runaways, what I imagined would be the story didn't end up being the story. The story changed form. What did you imagine the story to be? Can I, can I? Yeah, yeah. I, um, it was initially the story of two boys. It was initially the story of Monty and Sunny in a desert in Iraq on a march, thrown together, though they can't stand each other. That was the story. There was, there was, no, there was no past. There was no female character. There was nothing. There was just a kind of forward movement. And it, it didn't work, so I had to keep rethinking it. And as I rethought it, all these other narratives came to the fore. So I, don't, I try not to write for an audience, but I always hope whoever reads my books will be a little disturbed by them. When you say disturbed, do you mean like unsettled, like in the kind of Socratic way, like you- yes, yes, of course, <laughs> yes, of course. I don't mean I want to, I want to bother people, but I, but I mean absolutely Socratic. I mean, I, I, I would like it that people sit down with my book and think it will go one way, and then find themselves paused because it forced them to rethink something or reimagine something that they hadn't figured going in. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I think as I read it. I imagine what it would be like, and I'm not a novelist, so when I write, I'm writing to an audience, I have a very clear sense that I'm trying to preach to the choir or persuade the middle American or debate my political foes. You know, I have a very clear audience. And I, I thinking about it from a, a perspective of a novel, I wondered who people write to, who people think about, because in my mind, there's an American with fairly traditional American politics, but who's open-minded, who will read this book and have a much more humanized understanding of what's happening, but also have an understanding perhaps of the relationship between what we do, how we Mm -hmm. vote, what policies we produce, and the outcomes on people's lived experiences elsewhere, that there's some relationship between who we are and what the world is. And that's, for me, is not just a creative move, that's a political move. I mean, do you see your novels as as political acts or as political? Yeah, absolutely. I think... I really do believe all fiction is political. You know, if you choose to write a novel about a young woman um, who goes shopping every day, I mean, you're making an incredible political statement with that novel. You know, you're saying something <laughs> about the times we live in to do that. And, and I think that fiction really is a Trojan horse. It, it really allows you to take dangerous, uncomfortable things, explosive things, and package them in a way that people won't see them coming. You know, if I came up to you and said, would you like to read a story about some radicals who may or may not do fairly horrifying things? You might not be in the mood for it. You might say, oh, no, I'm a bit you know, tired and it's a But in a novel, you wouldn't see it coming. You know, it would be a beautiful wooden horse, not about radicalism or terrifying things. It would be about loneliness. It would be about the internet. It would be about young lives in uncertain times. It would be about a young girl whose mother is a Malishwali, which means that she goes around big houses with a little plastic bag of oils to massage rich women as they lay in their bedrooms after a long day of doing absolutely nothing. You know, I'm curious about that girl in a way I'm I'm not curious about terror, Mm. but everything is connected. I really do believe everything is connected. And 
The Runaways for me wasn't so much a book when I sat down to write it about radicalism. It was a book about wounded people. Mm. It was a book about being wounded by, by the world and what you might do in return. You are a novelist. You also are an essayist. You also do journalism. I'm going to say the last book was journalistic as well as kind of cultural criticism. Yeah. And that way you remind me a great deal of Baldwin. You know, Baldwin could write an essay on what it meant to be Black and queer or same gender loving in in, in the 1960s or 70s. But he could also write Giovanni's Room. And you could come to terms with these characters in, you know, in France on their own terms. Yeah. You've made similar choices. Did you understand your, your writerly identity to be one or the other? Did you kind of just venture into one and then started doing the other? Hmm. Well, first of all, I love Baldwin. I mean, my, my two sort of constant heroes, and I know you share this, are Malcolm X and, and Baldwin. Yes. Because I find, them, I find them free men, and they're free men because they're unafraid. They are unafraid of truth, and they are unafraid of ugliness and terror and injustice. And in, in, in that way, they're both incredibly beautiful, inspiring writers and, and speakers, as, as well as thinkers. And I think when, when I read Baldwin, what I'm looking for is, is his eye. You know, is the way in which he sees anything. Yeah. The way in which he sees an Italian waiter, you know, in Paris. The way he sees a culture of, of deeply ingrained racism and oppression. And I think when I sit down to write, I'm not necessarily thinking about whether I want to do fiction or nonfiction. Something's caught my, my eye and I, and I want to watch it. And whatever way is the best way of watching it, I'll do that. Mm. But, I, but I will say, and you may consider writing fiction after this, Mark, that there is a kind of freedom with fiction that you just don't have with nonfiction. What kind of freedom? Well, nonfiction, nonfiction is so much clearer, you know. Like you said, you know what you need to do, you know what you need to get, you know how you need to present it, and you know how you need to defend it. But it kind of holds you in that way. Whereas with fiction, you're at liberty in the world to imagine, to use real things. No one will ever know which is which except you. You know, it's like operating under cover of night. It's mm-hmm. like operating in the dark, but being comfortable in the dark. So you, you know, by instinct, you find your way. And that, that is something I feel drawn to again and again. You have been writing for a long time. You're quite young because we're basically the same age, I'm going to hold on to that. You're quite young, (laughs) yet you have published many books. You started at 15. Your first book, you published a book called Whispers of the Desert. Yes, I did. I I had studied writing poetry as a young child in school. And my father, who I was very close to, always encouraged me to write. He's one of the reasons I, I really became a writer. And my father, at the time, I took these poems to my father and said, um, you know, what do you think of this? I'm, I'm working on poetry these days. I was 12 or something. <laughs> and he read it very seriously. And, you know, he had like opinions and, you know, how, why did you do this? And what does that mean? And, and he, he encouraged me to keep writing. And 
when I was 14, he was killed. And just, just before he was killed, I mean, in the day before, I, I had kind of gotten this contract, but because I was a child, I had to have a guardian sign it. And I remember going to my father and saying, sign this contract. You know, we knew something bad was happening around us. This was Karachi in the 1990s. It was a very politically volatile and violent place. I gave my father this contract and said, well, you better sign this now. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, no, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I might be arrested. Put it in my bag. I'll do it. I'll do it later. I'll do it in jail. And he, he was not arrested. He was killed. And so afterwards, I changed houses and Oxford University Press published it in Pakistan. Really a year after his killing. And, and I published it in his, in his memory. Wow. You, you've done a great deal of work um, in his memory. And just to give people some context, I wasn't necessarily going to go the dad direction because I'm sure that can be exhausting at times. So I, I won't go too far there. But since you referenced it, just so the audience has context, your father uh, was Murtaza Bhutto. Your aunt, Benazir Bhutto, was, was the, the sitting prime minister of Pakistan at the time when your father was, was, was murdered. You are part of a family that has had a long-standing sort of, not just privilege, but I mean, really uh, the ruling or, or, or certainly a dominant family mm-hmm. in, in the country for a very long time. And so that also, I think, informs your work, I, I would think. Mm-hmm. You journeyed after your father was killed. You then left and you ended up in, uh, where'd you, did you end up in Syria after that? Oh, no, we were in Syria before. Right, that's right. So you went from Pakistan to Syria. Well, we went, my father was, um, at the time my father was killed, he was a member of parliament, but he had been in exile before he returned to Pakistan. And so I was born in Afghanistan and I grew up in Syria and then we went back home to Pakistan. But after my father was killed, I did return to Syria briefly, just in the, in the immediate aftermath because things were so uncertain. And so much of your childhood was spent in various places. Then you come to New York for, for under for college, and then you go yeah. to London for graduate school. So you you are a global traveler, <laughs> and it seems to shape your work. I have a couple of questions about that, but but mm-hmm. one of the things that I think about when you talk about sort of that book being the memory of your father is I actually think about uh, Songs of Blood and Sword, mm. which is a memoir. Again, yeah. some people wait until they're 100 to write a memoir. Some people yeah. write memoirs very young. But <laughs> this was a very important memoir well, talk to me about why you wrote the memoir. Well, Songs of Blood and Sword, I always think of as my father's, a biography of my father's life and murder, mm. rather than my memoir, because I'm only in the book in, insofar as I relate to his story. I'm not really in the book other, otherwise. But again, in, in that period, just before my father was killed, in the night before, two nights before, he, was, he had just uh, turned 42. He just had a birthday two days before he was killed. And we were talking about his life and I said to him, you know, you really must write a book because you've lived through extraordinary things. And my father was a reader and he was a writer and and he was a great narrator. And I said, you have to do it. And he said, oh, no, 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 you know, I can't do that. You know, you do it for me. Mm. And when I, again, really precocious as I was said, okay, great. Like, when should we sit down for an interview? He said, no, 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 you do, it from, you do it after I'm gone. And so it was the last promise I made to my father was to write his story. I never thought I'd have to write about his murder. I, I thought I would write about the incredible times he lived through 
and was still living through. But then two days later, he was killed. And I, it sat with me for a long time, this, this promise. And so 10 years after his assassination, I started looking. And I started traveling and finding people and interviewing people. And that, all that work became Songs of Blood and Sword. That, that book is compelling for many reasons, and it's heart-wrenching in many ways. I could imagine how that could be torture to write. I could also imagine how that could be cathartic to write. Because you're not, you're talking about the death, you're talking about other family members in their, in their, your aunt in particular, in relationship to everything that's happening. I mean, mm. it's heavy. It was incredibly heavy. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredibly heavy. And a lot of, a lot of people imagined, or at least I was always asked that, you know, was it, did I get closure? Yeah. And I don't think you ever get closure from violence. I don't think you can survive violence and then be closed from it. Oh, wow. And some things were important, if not healing. You know, my father was killed in a police operation. It was an extrajudicial killing. And I was 14 years old. And I had a, I continue to have a visceral reaction against police. I mean, anytime I see one, I don't feel safe. I feel threatened. And when I was writing Songs of Blood and Sword, I was 27, something like that, 25. Ugh. And um, I had to go and interview policemen. And I had to interview policemen who were there that night on the street. They sent about 100 policemen to close the roads. They put policemen in trees and sniper positions. And they were policemen who led the murder, but there were also policemen who had just been called to the, to the scene and they didn't know why they were there. And I had to speak to both. And the experience of doing that was important for me, even if it wasn't healing. But yeah, it was definitely heavy, I have to say. It, it, it was heavier after the fact. It was heavier having to tour with that book more than writing it. Do you ever go back and reread that or other texts? I, you know, I, I don't really, because anytime I go back and read an old book, I kind of want to rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> you know that feeling. Oh my you God. Say, Why did I say this? It should have been like that. Yeah. So talk to me about uh, your writing process. What is your... And maybe it's two different processes for different types of books, but what's your, what's your writing process like? Hmm. I think it's a little different if it's fiction or nonfiction. If it's nonfiction, it's much clearer because, you know, as we were saying, you know what you need to get. And so you will divide things up into research and there'll be a, a long period where you're just alone in a room with books and the internet taking down notes. And then another part of it will be seeking people out, you know, talking to people, interviews. And then the last bit writing. That's a little more clear cut. But when I'm working on fiction, it's different. First of all, because I'm very secretive about fiction. Because you don't actually have to go out and talk to people. You don't actually have to ring people up and say, could I interview you about X, Y, or Z? And so it's a private thing that's just mine. So I'm, I'm very mysterious when I'm working. You on. prefer that? Because I mean, you could be bouncing ideas. You could be saying, hey, what do you think about this character? You actually oh, no. enjoy the secretive nature of it. Yes, because I think, I think fiction has to be protected from light, from oxygen, from air. And I think there's a danger with revealing something that's not finished. You know, so when you're working on nonfiction, I'm sure you find this true. You, you go out to interview someone and you think you're going to get something from them and you get something else. And it causes you to reroute everything and think, yeah. oh, I didn't even imagine this was. 
But I think that same thing is, while it's wonderful with nonfiction, I think it's disastrous with fiction. <laughs> mm. You know, because it's, fiction is an act of surrender. It's not really up to you as a writer. You, you go into it thinking it's up to you, but you actually have no control and you kind of have to let yourself go to follow the story. And if you tell a friend something and they go, oh, I don't really think that's a good idea. <gasps> that would be heartbreaking. It's too, it's too dangerous. So I don't do that. I, I'm very quiet and very secretive. There's just sort of skulk around for years. You know, people ask me, what are you doing? Oh, you know, this and that. <laughs> Not much. And you're actually developing narratives and characters and such. Do you develop the characters? Like, do you write your way through the, the character development? Or, do you, or are you sort of imagining like a backstory for the character before you even get to page? Well, that's a really good question, actually. With The Runaways... I knew the basic of Monty and Sunny's backgrounds, you know, like I, I knew where they came from. I kind of knew what they were feeling, but it was only when I was writing that I started to see their parents or that I started to hear their parents, that I started to see their friends. And, and so that would change and, you know, I'd have to tweak things along the way. But the particulars I think you discover and you find yourself, I mean, I know this sounds totally odd, but I think you do find yourself surprised by your own character <laughs> along the way, because they exercise a weird amount of free will for people that you've made up. Now, I was gonna ask you, and I've heard Toni Morrison talk about that before. As a non-novelist, it's hard for me to understand what that means, yeah. but the characters eventually become their own people in your, in your universe, and they surprise you sometimes. How, how do you navigate that as a writer? Do you have to sometimes just change course? I think you do. I think, and I think that's one of the, the liberating and incredibly difficult things about fiction is that you have to stop in the middle of a path you thought you charted out and abandon it hmm. and start from the beginning. And it's really great for your ego because it's such a good reminder that we control nothing <laughs> um, and, and nothing is up to us. But, but you do. So with the runaways, right? I mean, there are a couple of big things, but I can't tell you about them because they're spoilers. But with the runaways, for example, I, I knew that Sunny was going to have a very seductive cousin called Oz, who was, going to, who was going to interest him in this idea of running away. But I didn't really know what Oz was going to do once he'd seduced his cousin into radicalism. I've, that came to me somewhere in the middle. Wow. There are some novelists who will hear what you just said, or some aspiring novelists. Mm. And who will say, how do I get there? How do I get to a point where I'm writing a character and then I've relinquished control in such a way that the character can surprise me as the writer? It seems to me that you have to enter a certain kind of zone. How do, you, what's the, how do I get there as a writer? Tears. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of tears. You, I mean, Oz didn't appear until the fourth or fifth draft of the book. Wow. You know, and the moment I saw Oz, it just went like, just went into place. And I thought, oh, this is who I've been missing. Mm. But, I, but I wrote hundreds of pages before, and I rewrote hundreds of pages before I got to Oz. And I think there's something very valuable about being a writer, especially in the times we live in, which is everything that we live through, whether it's the internet or our ideas of success or ambition or whatever, require speed. You know, you have to do X by the time you're Y. You have to get this by the time that happens. And actually, that is a fatal quality in writing. 
if you rush, you will kill everything. You know, nothing will grow to the point of surprise or wonder or beauty or dread if you rush. You have to go slowly. Go slow. And in multiple drafts, do you find yourself redrafting more with fiction than nonfiction? Oh, I mean, a thousand times more with, with fiction. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy rewriting. I think that's where the real work is, it is in polishing. And one more process question. Do you write every day when you're writing a book? Are you writing every day or do you like binge write like 10 hours one day and then you, you walk away from it for days at a time? Oh, no, every day. You have to do every day. I think to sustain your thoughts, you know, whether they're imagined or they're real, you need to work every day. But... I do always find that somewhere, you know, after every six months or four or five months, you do kind of hit a wall and you get stuck. And at that point, I just step away and I'll, I'll, I'll take a little break and wait for things to, to reappear for me. Who influenced you? Obviously, your father played a big role, but, but in terms of books you, you read or, or authors or in your case, also poets, who influenced you or, and influences you now? Well, I suppose every book has its own set of influences because there's people who direct you and then there are general. So I would say generally the writers, I mean, I, James Baldwin is just, I think, the most beautiful writer in the English language. And you are a student on his page, you know, whatever he's writing about. I think Toni Morrison, I, mean, I learned so much about the possibilities of writing from what Toni Morrison does. Poets, I think the poets are always wonderful. You know, Nizar Abani, who's mm. a beautiful Syrian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, Fez Ahmed Fez. I think all the poets that I, that I love and read remind me constantly about language. But with this book, with The Runaways, it was particular stuff that I read that was exciting and inspiring. Before it came to me, the idea of this book, I just read The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Mm. And something about it unsettled me or disturbed me <laughs> in that good way. The thing that disturbed me about that book was, was the father and the son, you know, on this march that's never going to end, you know, what it means to be walking towards nothing. That really jolted me. So I was kind of thinking about that. And then I read this Naipaul, V.S. Naipaul novella. It's in the collection In a Free State about a man and a woman who have to take a journey together. And that was also kind of, that, that I read, you know, on drafts seven or eight or whatever, but it did help me fine tune. Um, and then there's a great, another great book, which I would recommend to your listeners, a book called Ours Are the Streets by Sanjeev Sahota, which was the first book I read about someone who becomes radicalized. I hadn't read that in, in novel form at the time I was writing. And he does it really, elegantly and sadly. That was a great book, that, that influenced me. Those are powerful books. I, a few of those we will add to the list to, on our page, but also I encourage everyone to read all the books that we've mentioned today because they really do shape who we are as readers and as writers. Uh, before you go, I'm going to ask you to play a game that I make all of my guests play. Okay. I have to let you know ahead of time that you're gonna hate me afterward. <laughs> it, it tortures the guests. Okay. The game is called Buy It, Borrow It, or Burn It. Ooh, burn I'm it? I'm going to name three books. One you can buy, one you can borrow, and the third, you got to burn. Okay. I'll preface this to my listeners as I always do, that we don't really believe in burning books, and we <laughs> love all the books in the world that are good. But 
Okay. You have to buy one, borrow one, and burn one. You ready? Okay, got it. Here, here are the three books. This is How You Lose Her, Juno Diaz. Okay. Second book, The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin. The third book, and here's where you're really going to kill me, The Great Gatsby. Ah. This is the worst game I've ever had to. Say <laughs> so it's the worst game ever. <laughs> Can I just cut the connection and pretend that I was you become a real runaway, right? You just disappear. <laughs> yeah. Can't hear you. Oh, this is dreadful. Okay, um, I'm gonna buy the Baldwin. Why? Why buy the Baldwin? Because I I can remember as I'm remembering reading that book, my skin is standing on edge. Mm. It's a stunning book that altered how I felt the world stood when I read it. So that I will buy. I'm going to borrow This Is How You Lose Her. Really? Because I love, I love that book. And I think Juno is a really incredible writer. And what he does with language is beautiful. And I'll tell you why I'm going to borrow it is because I think there's something really valuable that he does in his books where he writes and he will include Spanish without ever explaining what it means. Mm, very true. And I love that because we've all had to read, you know, Greek words and French words and books and just we're just supposed to know what they mean as though that's the kind of standard the world's built on. And Juno does that for Spanish. And I, I think that's important. And I'm going to have to burn The Great Gatsby, even though I really liked it when I read it as a young person. I thought, just for the record, I thought you would buy Baldwin, borrow Fitzgerald, and burn Diaz, because I thought you would have a sentimental attachment to The Great Gatsby, because I remember you just saying that it was like yeah. almost like a, your first love is a book. One of your first it was. Books. It was. But... You forced me to burn something, and <laughs> and I and I like it for sentimental reasons rather than like heart, like soul reasons, you know. So if you know, really, what is the Great Gatsby? You know, it's just about a guy who likes a girl and they can't tell her, you know, and then she dies. So whatever, it's not. It doesn't say something magnificent about the times that we live in. That is a fair, though somewhat harsh assessment. Of, <laughs> Look how quickly I went from loving the great Bat Gatsby to burning it. And exactly. It. <laughs> <laughs> Radicalized. I, my job here is done. My job here is done. Yeah. How can people uh, find you on social media? I'm F Butto, so F-B-H-U-T-T-O on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll hopefully we can talk to you again when you write your next book, which will probably be like poetry, memoir, maybe a feature film. Oh my God. It'll <laughs> be a while. We're waiting for your, your book, Mark. Yes, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to call you for advice. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Fatima, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure you follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that have been discussed here on bookshop.org slash UncleBobbies, or you can go to UncleBobbies.com. That's UncleBobbies.com. <laughs>